You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days adorned for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. And you can be seated. Thank you, Amarachi. Defining reality. And before, um, uh, before we get to this text, uh, just wanted to remind you that if you're not in a community group or a, uh, coming to the Thursday night Bible study, this is a great time uh, to start coming. Uh, all the information is on the screen, is in your bulletin, is in the back. So if you're not regularly in community in our church studying scripture together, this is the time to do that. Uh, Thursday night Bible study is a great spot if you don't necessarily have uh, the capacity to be regular every single week somewhere. You can pop in anytime you want. Uh, but if you're able to commit to a small group Bible study, I would encourage you uh, to do so. Defining reality. It's been my experience that uh, over the past 15 years of ministry, one of the biggest temptations that pastors face is to add something to God when talking with people who are facing difficult circumstances. When, when faced with a person's doubt or confusion, grief and anger, we pastors can be tempted to speak more like a therapist or an analyst a person suffering might tempt us to sound more like a, a speculator or, or a manager. We're tempted, that is, like everyone else who has decided to live by faith in the unseen God, to believe that the simple reality of that God is not enough in the face of human suffering. 
I, I wonder how many times over the years I have succumbed to this temptation. How often have I traded my simple responsibility of bearing witness to God for something that seems more useful, more practical, a, a bit of pithy cliche, some therapeutic speak, a, a, re- a recommendation to read something, to listen to something, to watch something, to, to do something. I'm very thankful for counselors and therapists. I'm glad we have thoughtful analysts and authors. I, I regularly recommend people these resources, these sources of wisdom, and I've benefited from them countless times myself. But I am a pastor, and my call is very simple, to bear witness to the all-consuming reality of the living God. And yet the circumstances of this life tempt me to add to God, to assume that God is not quite enough, not a lens powerful enough through which to interpret life's pain. Not a foundation strong enough to hold us fast through the suffering storms. And I suspect that I am not alone in this. I am not alone in succumbing to this temptation to add something, some things to God. And this in part is what captures my attention first in Psalm 139. It's the poet's refusal to let anything be more real more true, more defining than God. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for the darkness is as light to you. This God is real. This God is near. And to the psalmist, nothing could be better. Your works are wonderful. In these poetic stanzas, the psalmist rejoiced in the Lord's nearness as the defining reality in life. Everything else and everybody else would be interpreted through the defining reality, which is the Lord. This week, a hurricane devastated the Bahamas. Hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets in Hong Kong in protest. At least six Chicago families today are mourning the loss of relatives to gun violence over the past week. How near does God seem in the midst of hurricanes and political repression and bloodshed? This week, some of us walked our children to their first day of school. Others spent time worrying about and caring for critically ill family members. The weight of loneliness was especially heavy on some of us this week. These smaller moments, too, can provoke us to live as though God were not so close. As though the situations common to our humanity carry more influence than God in how we actually live. I think we need to hear the joyful testimony of the psalmist today. In response to hurricanes and bloodshed, quiet anxieties and private isolations, we are right to ask, God, are you near? And the psalmist, no stranger to suffering, replies quickly and with joy, yes, 
God is near. Nothing is closer than God. Nothing is truer than God. Nothing defines reality more accurately than God. So today, trusting this poetic wisdom, I want us to see that evaluating our experiences through God's presence leads us to extravagant praise. That evaluating our experiences through God's presence leads to extravagant praise. Now, Psalm 139, and maybe you noticed it as Amarachi was reading, has four sections that flow one into the next. And only in the final section does the poet acknowledge the painful circumstances which are competing with God to be the defining reality in his life. I think if we follow the movements through these sections, we'll see how evaluating our experiences through the presence of God will lead to extravagant praise. So the first section comes in verses 1 through 6, and and I've given my own subtitles to each of these four sections, and I would subtitle verses 1 through 6, God is near you. Can you say that? The, 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 The poet is here reiterating the closeness of God. God, you searched me. You know me. You perceive my thoughts. You discern my going out. You are familiar with my ways. You hem me in. You lay your hand upon me. Now, if we're honest, coming from anybody else, this would sound creepy, (laughs) kind of stalker-like. This is a little too much. But for the psalmist, all of this is a source of joy. In verse 6, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. If God is good, then this God's nearness is also good. Very, very good. And this is an active nearness. This is a God who searches. This is a God who perceives. A God who surrounds, who lays his hands upon us. This world might condition us to imagine a more passive God. Evil is what can appear to be active in our world. Missiles launch, fists fly, guns recoil, hatred spews. Evil can seem to be active, while God sometimes appears to our imaginations passive. And when we imagine a passive God, a God overwhelmed by evil's energy, then our prayers can begin to sound a little bit like that Old Testament prophet Elijah. Elijah who stood upon Mount Carmel, taunting the priests of Baal as they beseeched their God to light their sacrifice. Shout louder, Elijah said. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy, or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. But the psalmist in Psalm 139 is not singing to a sleeping God. His God is active and awake. This is a pursuer, a searcher. He is a discerning God, a surrounding God, a knowing God. This God is near to him because this God has actively come near to him. 
I wonder what our prayers sound like on a regular basis. Do our prayers sound more like Elijah's taunts or the psalmist's exaltations? Is it possible that in your imagination, in your heart, God has been pacified? Could it be that your circumstances have taken on greater power than you've granted to the imminent God who has come near? Psalm 139 invites us to adjust our our perception this morning. What would change for you this week if you were to remember that no one is closer to you than your loving God? God's nearness is the psalmist's first movement toward extravagant praise. The second section comes in verses 7 through 12, and I've subtitled this, God pursues you. Can you say that? This flows naturally from the first section, from God's persistent presence to the psalmist's reflection that there's nowhere he can go to leave God. The the focus shifts from, from God's sufficient activity to the psalmist's inability to ever abandon God. Listen to verses 7 through 9 again. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed on the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. There is nowhere we go where God is not. The psalmist does not leave God behind when he leaves worship in the temple to return to regular life. There's an echo here of Psalm 24 and 1 in the old King James Version. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. It's all God's. But we can forget this, can't we? We can be like Jonah that rebellious Old Testament prophet, imagining that we can put enough distance between ourselves and the God who calls us to himself. We hear the poet's song and like that rebellious prophet wonder, do I want that everywhere always kind of God? In our actions, if not in our words, we demonstrate our desire for a limited God, for a finite deity who cannot see into the darkness or the shadows where we choose to hide. A God for whom darkness is not dark, for whom the night will shine like day, that seems a bit much. We prefer a God who remains in the temple who will be content with our weekly acts of piety and worship and who will leave us mostly alone the rest of the week until we get into trouble. But the God of Psalm 139 will not be contained and will not be left behind. We do not invite this God into our lives. This God has welcomed us into his creation, into his world. When you walk into the conference room tomorrow, you are treading on God's sacred ground. When you return to the classroom tomorrow, you are walking upon sacred ground. When you collapse onto your couch on Wednesday night, mindlessly grabbing for the remote, even there, you are on holy ground. 
It's all holy ground, saturated with the presence of God. And this, too, the psalmist testifies, is very good. And it provokes our praise. In verse 8, the the poet says, if I made my bed in the depths, and the word depths there is, is shoal. It's the realm of the dead. You see, Jonah could not leave God behind, but neither would God abandon his prophet to a watery grave. God's ever presence is a rescuing reality, a saving reality, a liberating reality. This God is found in the wilderness, resisting the devil's temptations. This God is found in the midnight garden, submitting his life to the battle that awaits him on Calvary. This God is found hanging on the cursed tree, naked and abandoned, darkness descending over his lifeless body. And this God is found emerging from the depths of the tomb, leaving behind the realm of the dead, rising in brilliance over sin, death itself, and the schemes of the devil. Somebody say amen. Where can I flee from your presence? He asks this rhetorical question with laughter in his voice. His testimony of God's nearness joyfully spilling from his lips. Christian, you cannot flee from God. There is no shadow so deep. There is no sin so complete. There there is no shame so ancient that God is not already waiting for you there in that place, calling for you, singing over you with songs of freedom and salvation. You are not responsible for bringing God to these seemingly God-forsaken places in your life. No, you are simply responsible for confessing with delight, with joy, with thanksgiving, with happiness that there are no God-forsaken places in your life. That there are no God-forsaken places in creation. If God made it, then God claims it all for himself. Acknowledging that we cannot flee from God's presence moves us closer to the extravagant praise in the face of any and every circumstance. The third section, the third movement then comes in verses 13 through 18, and I'd subtitle this, God has always known you. Can you say that? Have you ever found yourself preaching to yourself? For me, it happens when I hear certain worship songs during, during the week. Um, Waymaker is one of those songs for me right now. If I hear that, I'm going to go in, doesn't matter where I am, where I'm driving, I start preaching to myself. Sometimes when I'm preparing a sermon, I, I forget that I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to just be studying it because all of a sudden the Spirit starts preaching to my heart about how good the gospel of Jesus is. I don't know about you, but, but sometimes I, I find myself preaching to myself. I think this moment comes for the psalmist in verses 13 and 14. He says, for... This is the transition here. This is the because you created me. You created my inmost being. You you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for for I am fearfully and wonderfully wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. 
It's almost as though the implications of everything that he has sung so far are starting to sink into his heart. God's nearness, God's everywhere-ness means that the psalmist has never not been known by God. And he's getting excited about it. These are awe-saturated words. I think the feeling, the, the, the tenor, the tone of the, of the song shifts in this third movement here. You see, previously, God had been the relentless pursuer, harrowing the depths of hell for his beloved. But now, now the psalmist imagines God as a tender weaver. The scene is vulnerable, incredibly intimate. God is a knitter, hunched over a a loom, delicately ensuring that every fiber is intertwined according to divine design. We are stitched together, sings the poet, in the depths of the earth. Even here, before we are conscious of God's presence, even here we are known and held together. And then from this vulnerable place, this tender place, comes a declaration in verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. This is no dry theological point about God's preordaining ways. As we're about to see, the poet who praises so exuberantly is himself in trouble. His praise is marked by personal pain. This is not the time for a nuanced theological debate. Rather, having evaluated his experience, his circumstance, his situation through God's presence, he can declare that the future, however unknown, is securely held by God. Whatever power his enemies might claim, they cannot claim his future. So from whatever trouble he finds himself in, the psalmist declares, my future is secure. My steps have been ordered. He declares that however loud the difficult circumstances are, however all-consuming the the painful situation seems to be, however devastating the surprising tragedy is, God is still near. And so the future remains open. I've been, my attention, my imagination has been grabbed by the protests that have been happening in Hong Kong over the past couple of weeks. People are filling the streets of that amazing city in response to the government's crackdown on on civil liberties. And and they're being met by tear gas and rubber bullets at times and even some instances of police brutality. And in response to this, a a small group of of Catholic students joined the protests and, and they began singing hymns. And one of those hymns they sang was, Sing Hallelujah to the Lord. And the words are simple, sing hallelujah to the Lord, sing hallelujah to the Lord, sing hallelujah, sing hallelujah, sing hallelujah to the Lord. And it started with this small group of Catholic students singing and soon it spread throughout the crowd until after a little bit of time, 
thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people were singing again and again this simple chorus for hours at a time in the face of great opposition, anxiety, uncertainty. For me, this is a picture of the security that comes from grasping God has always known me. In this singing protest, we see what it can look like for our reality not to be defined by our circumstances, but our circumstances to be defined by God's presence. God knows you. God has always known you. Nothing can change this fact. Not your sickness, not your sin, not your shame. None of these define you. And none of them need to define your reality either. The God who knew you before you knew anything. This God stands ready like a knitter over her intricate work to be the guiding reality of your life. And when this is true for us, when we understand that we have always been known by this God, we can join those brave young protesters in Hong Kong and stand before whatever our equivalent happens to be of tear gas and rubber bullets, knowing that these are not the defining realities of our lives. And we too can sing hallelujah to our God. Accepting that God has always, always, always known us is another step toward extravagant praise. Finally, the last section is in verses 19 through 24, and I would subtitle this, God will rescue you. Can you say that? We finally get to the psalmist's troubles, to the pain, to the suffering. One moment he's counting God's precious thoughts like grains of sand. It's beautiful. It's spiritual. It sounds so good. And then the next in verse 19, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. I have nothing but hatred for them. It's like, what just happened? Now, we don't know the specifics of his trouble. Maybe there was some kind of malicious slander that he was facing. But the specifics don't matter so much. What matters is the abrupt change in the song itself. It feels out of place. How can a song of praise about the nearness of God shift so abruptly to this? And so I think it's worth pausing here for just a moment. Because I think our tendency is to think of closeness with God as excluding the real stuff of life. I know none of us would say that this morning. But when we imagine in our mind's eye a moment of spiritual intimacy with God aware of how God is the defining reality of our lives, are we also in that moment imagining dealing with that frustrating supervisor? Are we imagining changing that especially nasty diaper? 
When we picture that, that moment of intimacy with God where God is defining all of our reality, are we also imagining coming home at the, at the end of a long day to an empty refrigerator? Or defining ourselves in yet another slightly different version of the same old fight you and your spouse, you and your parent have been arguing about for years. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. So you see, I think we can learn from the psalmist here. Because if we are to experience the nearness of God that is already and always true, then we have to become accustomed to drawing close to this God as the people we actually are. Frail, tired, angry, hungry, addicted, confused, worried, distracted, and on and on. We come to this God not as the ideal version of ourselves, but as we actually are. This is what it means to allow for the Lord to become our defining reality, that we allow him to define our reality from exactly where we stand today with whatever we happen to be thinking about today, with whatever we happen to be worrying about today, with whatever we happen to be feeling today. Some of you are in the midst of a real deal depression right now. And you believed that you cannot bring your whole self to God until you've got this depression thing figured out. Some of us are facing profound financial need right now. And the way our culture works, we have been made to feel ashamed about that financial need. And we think somehow we cannot bring our full selves to God until we've got our finances in order. And the psalmist testifies to us today, no, you bring everything about who you are. All of what you're experiencing. You hide nothing. You leave nothing behind when you come to this God. And so because the poet comes to this God fully himself from the pit of his circumstances, two important things happen. The first is that he leaves vengeance to God. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. He's not going to exact vengeance himself. The second thing is that he includes himself in his own indictment. Search me, God. And know my heart. Test me too. And know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. When God is not our defining reality, we very quickly become the vindictive judges we were never meant to be. We view our circumstances through our own inevitably biased lens. So we set ourselves apart, we're quick to point the finger at anyone but ourselves. One of the ways I see this dynamic playing out is on the Sankofa trips that I help out with a couple times a year where we, we, we take groups of folks through civil rights monuments in, in the South and we pair people up across, across race. And, and one of the things that happens at about day one and a half or two is that uh, some of the, the, the white people especially some of our younger white people, uh, want to distance themselves, ourselves, from the bad white people, uh, from the racist white people, 
um, fr- from the ones who are, are continuing to perpetuate uh, a racial trauma and, and violence in our country. And so, so the language that starts to be used is not us, but them, those people. And so we let ourselves off the hook. The psalmist doesn't allow us to do that this morning. The psalmist ensures that the spotlight of God's attention is on his own heart, on his own sins, on his own complicity as well. The poet is willing to open himself to the searching gaze of God, of the God who frankly already knows it all. It's not that the poet hasn't been wronged. It's not that he's not suffering. It's not that he doesn't have a legitimate complaint. He does. Rather, he he knows that despite all of this, he is not innocent. He too is a sinner, in some way responsible for someone else's lament before God. He too needs to be forgiven in some way. Leaving vengeance to God and remembering our own sinful complicity allows God to become the defining reality of our lives, even when our Painful, suffering circumstances are clamoring to be the realest thing to us. We experience the inevitable hardships in life as image bearers of the living God, accepting that we are limited. And when we do, we can know the nearness of the God who is without any limit. When we draw near to God in our pain, we can be honest about our suffering without being defined by our suffering. We can admit the depression that we are experiencing without being defined fully by it. We can admit and and acknowledge the financial anxiety that that we're experiencing without being defined by it. Our uncertainty about the future, our spiritual doubts, our struggle with sin, we can admit, acknowledge, confess these things without being defined by them. With God as your defining reality, you can be more honest, not less, about your pain. (laughs) about your suffering, about your sin. Why? Because as the psalmist discovers, there is no suffering so great as to overwhelm the nearness of God. I want to say it this way. In the presence of the suffering Savior, even our pain becomes a pathway to God's provision. In the presence of a suffering, crucified Savior, Even our pain, even our suffering can become a path to God's provision for us. And so the psalm, despite its crass and unsentimental language in this part, ends with a joyful petition. Lead me in the way everlasting. I want to know what ugly have you left behind as you draw near to God? What pain, what anger, what suffering, what what grief, what confusion, what doubt have you left behind in your attempt to draw near to God? The psalmist testifies that, in fact, all of this is fertile ground for praise. Draw near with your whole self today. Come close with all of who you are, all of what you have experienced in this life. When we bring our lived experiences to God with all of their painful complexities, we allow God to define our actual realities. And this points us to the praise that is available from the center of all of those experiences. Let me end here. 
Would you ask yourself, what, what took up the most space in your head this week? What took up the most space in your heart this week? What took up the most space in your imagination this week? What did you find yourself focusing on as you woke up in the morning and you fell asleep at night when things finally got quiet? What took up the most space in you this week? And then I want to ask, did the nearness of God shape how you experienced your circumstances? Or did your circumstances influence your experience of God? We human beings are a susceptible bunch, easily distracted from the one in whom we live and move and have our being. It doesn't take a hurricane to pull our attention away from the Lord. I've had some poison ivy on my ankle this week, and that has been enough for me to wonder about the goodness and the closeness of God. Some scratchy ankles. But evaluating our experiences through God's presence leads us to extravagant praise no matter our circumstances. God is near you. God pursues you. God has always known you. God will rescue you. So I invite you to join the poet's song of praise this week. Sing of the Lord's reality-defining presence in your life this week. Let the nearness of God, the relentlessly pursuing, all-knowing, always-rescuing presence of God, provoke your praise this week. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray, church. We thank you for the testimony of your saints over the generations. That praise does not need to be limited by our circumstances. That our experiences can be contained in the reality of you, Lord God. We are conditioned to place our experiences at the center of our lives. And we know you care deeply about what we've experienced in this life. The Holy Spirit of the living God, we need you to be closer, truer, and realer than any one of our passing circumstances. We need each of our experiences in this life, our joys, our tragedies, our places of genuine and profound suffering and our hopes. We need all of these to be held up against the simple reality of the living God. We don't know what we'll face this week. We don't know what news we'll receive. We don't know what surprising thing will happen in our country or somewhere around the world. But you are the unchanging God. You are the ever-present God. You are the nearby God. You are the long-suffering God, the patient God. You are the imminent God. You are the God who took on human flesh 
so that we could see you, know you, and love you. So convince our hearts, Spirit of God, of the goodness and the closeness of our Creator today. Be specific with us, would you please? Those places that are consuming our imaginations, those unanswered questions, those family traumas, those things that are genuinely important, but, but which have taken up too much space, which have unseated you. Be specific with us this morning, please, God. Show us where we can confess. Show us where we can see you high and lifted up above all that would compete for our attention and our affections. You are a good God. And so in the name of Jesus, we open up our hearts to you again today for the first time or once again, asking that you would rule and reign in every circumstance, every situation, no matter how good or how difficult. be the defining reality of our lives. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. Hallelujah. I I just need you to please, can we make a little bit of noise for our God today? God is so good. Listen, I promise you at some point this week, I mean, it might be like in the next 15 minutes, something is going to happen. You're going to get a text. You're going to bump into that person you've been strategically avoiding for years. Something is going to happen to tempt you to think that somehow something or somebody is closer and more powerful than God. It's going to happen. It's a lie. closer to you than God. No one is more powerful in your, not just in general, specifically to you in your circumstances. Nothing and no one is more powerful than God. Nothing can define your reality like God. Nothing can recontextualize what you're experiencing, what you're seeing, what you're feeling, what you're facing like the presence of God. Amen? It will happen. Don't be surprised when it does. When you start to feel that thing in your stomach, I don't know what it is for you. For me, I start to grind my teeth a little bit. I don't know what it is for you. When it happens, just recognize it. Oh, 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 I know what this is. I know what this is. But God, you are good. You are close. God, you have known me since before I knew you. You are a pursuing God, relentlessly chasing me. You have known me for all of eternity. God, you are good. You are close. And I will choose to interpret my experiences, my circumstances, even my suffering through the lens of your presence. Holy Spirit of the living God will give you every resource you need to do just that. I promise you. I promise you. And if you find yourself on your own, if you find yourself in a battle this week, reach out to somebody else who can pray that over you. Amen? We're in this together. Receive now this benediction, please. Search us, God, and know our hearts. 
test us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in us and lead us in the way everlasting that we could be women and men proclaiming and demonstrating your good and everlasting way everywhere we go this week. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Go in peace.